You're listening to Making a Living Show. I'm Roby Levy. Hi, I'm Xenia Nakvi, and I make lens-based art for a living. Xenia Nakvi combines photography, video, writing, and archival material to create her lens-based art. Through her work, she examines a range of issues from colonialism and cultural translation to language and gender. She's exhibited her work around the world, collecting accolades and awards, including the New Generation Photography Award from the National Gallery of Canada. Here's my chat with Xenia Nakvi. Who are you and what do you make for a living? So my name is Xenia Nakvi and I'm a photographer, artist, yeah, media artist, I guess you could say. I feel like that kind of changes every every <laughs> so often if it was the kind of label there. But yeah, I'm an artist who works with um, images and lens-based media. Uh, most of my work uses the family archive and I sort of activate uh, the archive in different ways and thinking about different themes that lately I've been thinking about sort of like citizenship and nationhood um, in some of my recent work. And yeah, that's pretty much what I do. I've started teaching as well uh, at the university level. I write a bit. I'm starting to do that more as well, actually. Um, yeah, that's me. <laughs> so we've got a few things to to unpack here. Let's roll all the way back and we'll go to the archive-driven photo projects. How'd you get started doing this and what it, what is an archive photo project? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I should clarify, I work mostly with the family archive and often my own family archive. Um, A lot of people, I think, are working with public archives and things like that uh, nowadays. I haven't dove into that realm yet. So I mostly work with my own family archive. And it really started off actually like the beginning of my photo career. So I did my undergrad in photography at Ryerson University. And yeah, I don't know how it kind of happened just by chance. I wasn't, I didn't sort of like grow up obsessed with the archive or anything like that, but it just kind of happened that I had family photos hanging in my home like anyone like anyone else. And I had a particular family photo uh, of my grandparents when they were young hanging in my home. And my friends would come over and say, who's that woman standing next to your dad? And I would say, well, that's my grandmother because my grandfather and my father look very similar. So one of my very first photo projects, I, I decided I was like, oh, maybe I should do like a then and now, like a compare and contrast between, so I called it past and present. So it was my grandparents and my parents. And I took a few images from my family archive and decided to recreate, uh, restage them. And what I kind of noticed from this exercise was, Yes, uh, a lot of my family members, of course, they look alike as, you know, that's natural. But what was really interesting that kind of came out of it was the different thinking about the different sort of parallels and the circumstances between the life experiences of uh, the two people. So my family's from Pakistan and my grandparents, well, they were from India and sort of uh, moved all over the Indian subcontinent after partition in 1947 and moved to various places because of jobs and, you know, war and different things. And my parents also moved from Pakistan to England, back to Pakistan, to Canada. So I was thinking about migration journeys and I started just thinking about parallels between their lives and, and things like that. So that was my first sort of impetus to start working with the archive. And it's just kind of grown from there. And now I just use it sort of, it's, I think we all have muses and I use it kind of as a starting point or a launch pad for me to look at the personal and look at the things that have happened in my history, but also in my present. And it's kind of a place for me to look at the life of my family and then just be like, okay, what does this say about larger themes and politics and, you know, geography, nationhood, these kind of things. So really, it's just kind of a jumping off point for me at this point. 
And what sort of stuff have you come to realize or come to know by exploring the archive of your family and in terms of those things like, like citizenship and migration and identity? And is it about the exploration or have you come to some conclusion? Um, I think it's more about the exploration. So some parts of my family archive, I would say, are like anyone else's. So for example, my recent project, Yours to Discover, I'm looking at photos that my family took when they're visiting tourist sites. So Niagara Falls, CN Tower, and uh, Cullen Gardens, and Miniature Village, which was in Whitby, uh, Ontario. They're not particularly exceptional. Like I think everybody has photos like these. I just, I like to work with my my family archive because I think I feel like I have some agency over these images and I like, because I know who's in them, I feel a certain sense of ability to play with them and then manipulate the images in different ways and, and then pull out different ideas of, yeah, like thinking about the performance of tourist sites and how we're supposed to behave there and what we're supposed to learn in terms of learn about Canada from visiting these tourist sites and how is that reflected in the way that my family behaves as like Canadian citizens. Um, so there's that. But then sometimes, so I have a series called Dear Nani in which I, uh, there's images of my grandmother and she was cross-dressing in 1948. Um, and those were obviously very unique and exceptional images. So sometimes parts of the archives will just be like, well, I found those. And I was like, well, I have to make a project <laughs> with them because they're so exceptional on their own. And as an artist to find them and not do anything with them would have just been a shame. So sometimes the things you find just call for activation. And then other times you find things that other people might think are mundane, but you're, you're kind of reading more into them. And, and just to qualify, when you say that your, that your grandmother in, in 1948 was cross-dressing, what was the nature of this event? Because it, it was a photo shoot. I mean, it was something that she and your grandfather were playing with at the time, right? Like, this isn't a sexual thing. This is, but there's some other element to it. What, what, what were they trying to get at with this? Well, that's the thing about it is, of course, I don't know for sure, but I'm reading a lot into the images. So I only know a bit from what my mom has told me. But my grandparents, I didn't really know them. My grandmother passed away when I was a teen and I didn't meet my grandfather. Um, and they were very sort of private individuals, you know, like my mom would never, my, my parents always knew that the photos of my grandmother cross-dressing existed, but they never dared to ask her directly what they were about because there was just level of kind of privacy uh, between them. But for me, again, as an artist, I saw them and, you know, they're taken 1948, the year after partition of India and Pakistan. It was the time, you know, formation of a new nation, democracy, independence from Britain. So for me, and then in doing my research, realizing like this was a time for, you know, changing time for the country, changing time for women, thinking about women's roles and pushing towards modernity from a sort of Western understanding, but also returning back to ancient traditions. Um, and there's, I, I, through my research, I've kind of ended up uncovering different figures of women called the Varangana, who was kind of a strong woman archetype um, in some uh, Indian mythology and, and literature. So thinking about this, it is a very like, it is a gendered thing, of course, and there is a bit of a sexual thing. My parents actually, one thing they used to say was that it was a, a kinky thing. <laughs> so maybe it was a little bit of a sexy flow, but um, it was also very much like, I don't think that they were thinking about this when they were doing this, but me reading into it, I think it was um, a, a political thing too, a colonial act. Um, but I'm only able to kind of read that in with my like hindsight. And because I've been to school, too, probably too much school. <laughs> well, I, I think it's interesting to take a look at that project specifically just because it, it actually oddly reminded me of, of a moment 
that happened when my folks were going through my grandmother's basement after she had passed away. And in there we found a chest and in there we found letters. And it was all the love letters that my Zadie had sent to my Bubby. And Mm. we'd never seen them. My folks had never seen them. No one had ever seen them. Of course, we read them. And they were sexy and flirty and fun. Of course, in the language of that time and stuff like that, it wasn't explicit. But that is a part of it. I mean, that's part of the reason we're all here is because there was some you know, sexiness going on. Um, but it's, it's interesting to think of one's grandparents who are usually these wholesome elderly people or even people we don't even get to know and only know through myth and legend, but to think of them as people and to think of them as young and vibrant mm-hmm. and having fun and stirring up shit. And so I, I, I immediately in seeing your photos in that project, I was like, oh yeah, that reminds me, you know, we're all, we were all young once. Yeah, exactly. And I think too, I also wanted to kind of find a way to keep an element of privacy um, with the project. So uh, like immediately everybody wants to know what was that about and why were they doing it? And I was kind of like, I don't have access to that information right now, first of all, but also I know very well that even if my grandmother was alive, she wouldn't tell me (laughs) (laughs) like, like she was like, Oh yeah, we were thinking about this or like, this was whatever, just on our honeymoon. They were on our honeymoon, like on their honeymoon. Uh, You can infer (laughs) into that what you like. (laughs) They were newly married, but I think it is also important to maintain that level of privacy and then also um, just kind of reaffirm that I, I can read into it what I what I want. But yeah, no, it was just like a beautiful moment. Because you depend on your family archive very much so as, as, as a muse, as inspiration, and as actual material in certain cases, is, is there ever a concern about revealing too much? I mean, are, are, you know, have your folks ever said, oh, I don't want you using those pictures, I don't want you revealing that moment, you know, these things are private. Is, is that ever a concern that you've run into? Um, for sure. I worry often about over, like, becoming dependent also, and I think I was also kind of concerned at certain points about constantly looking to the past to kind of make new material. And I also kind of wanted a way to address my present. My family has been incredibly supportive. um, So they don't usually say no. And to be honest, I often don't, I have to, I'm very like sort of in my head when I'm making work. So I often, I'm just kind of like make it and then show it to them after it's finished and hope it's okay (laughs) with everybody because I kind of need to be in my own zone. Um, There was a project that included um, video footage of my sisters when they were young and they were kind of reluctant to let me use it at first. They ended up coming around. I think I try to find a way to do it sort of respectfully that isn't. And there has been points where I've used our, our asked extended family, for example, to be part of projects and have them reveal things that were pretty personal and then kind of realize like, actually this is too personal and it's really not needed to uh, be revealed to the public. So then I kind of made that decision, like I'm going to keep this aside and and not use it. So I think it's important to know and understand those boundaries and yeah, and have communication. I want to say that I would like to say that it's more collaborative, but honestly, I kind of have to be in my own space when I'm making. So I just make it and then kind of, uh, you know, bring my family into the process afterwards and and we talk about it. And so far they've been good with it. <laughs> Beyond just specific pieces, what do your folks think about you as an artist? You know, is, is this something that they're happy for you having chosen? I'm going to, I'm you know, I'm going to go through school and I'm going to come out and I'm going to be an artist. For the most part, I think that's a lot of parents 
you know, nightmare for their kid. You know, they're like, oh, God, are you going to make any money? Are you going to be able to support yourself? These are legitimate concerns that we've all run into, all of us who Mm -hmm. make stuff with our folks. What do your folks think about it? Well, first of all, I should say I don't, I didn't really ever want to be an artist. And I didn't really think I was going to be an artist. I remember like sitting in my first year uh, art history class and the prof saying, when you guys are artists, and I'm like, I'm not going to be an artist. I thought (laughs) artists were like Van Gogh. I thought all artists were just like crazy and like Van Gogh and like cut their ears off. That's what I thought being an artist was. And I was like, no, I'm not going to like, how am I going to make money? So that, that wasn't on my radar at all. Um, I went to photography school because I wanted to be a photographer and a photojournalist is actually what the route I thought I was going to go. Um, my parents were definitely hesitant. Uh, they both appreciate and, and love art, but um, I don't come from a family of artists. So, um, and definitely an immigrant family, you know, just like financial stability is needed and a genuine concern. And even just going to photo school and buying photo equipment and all that is so expensive. So that was a concern as well. But I think they realized at a certain point, uh, one thing that helped my parents sort of did research through mutual connections and they happened to have a family friend who was teaching a photography class, actually, I think at George Brown, um, and sort of talked to other professionals in the field and then realized like, okay, if she really wants to do it, getting a degree is a good first step and really committing to it um, was important. So, and I think also realizing that it was going to be difficult, a difficult path made me work really hard in my degree and realize that I needed to do, um, you know, just getting a, a degree in photography was not going to be enough. And while using that time being in school to, so I worked at the student gallery um, for three years and I also worked at the virus and image center and I became really involved in the community of the school and and got a lot of work experience actually while I was a student so that when I graduated, I had a lot of um, just kind of firsthand experience already. Uh, so that helped. Yeah, it sounds like you had a real rounded idea of what it is to be in the photography world, whether it's mm-hmm. snapping the photo all the way through to hanging it on the wall or for that matter, getting it into magazine or into yeah. television and whatnot. Yeah, so I should say I wanted to um, be a photojournalist at first because I was really interested in images and storytelling. But then I kind of just, as I started going along, I realized that I work very slowly and I like to take a lot of time to think about things and spend a lot of time contemplating. So I was a little bit more shy at that time too. So I wasn't very like in your face. So I started to realize that maybe being a photojournalist wasn't the right path for me, but I started working in this way and luckily it's worked out (laughs) just by chance. But yeah, it's just, I think about being persistent. Well, and and you've had a lot of success and recognition for your work in this more experimental uh, use of photography and more art directed Mm -hmm. photography because you've won some awards. Is that right? Uh, Yes. I uh, won, I guess it was uh, in 2019, the New Generation Photography Award, which yeah, was a great. So I had the opportunity to exhibit uh, my Dear Nani project at the National Gallery of Canada. So that was, yeah, I've had I've had really great um, support from the community. And did those things go a long way to helping with confidence and as well helping with just general acceptance, like maybe by friends, family members who may have been questioning it? I would say, honestly, like probably a year or two into my undergrad, my family realized that I was serious. And since then, it's been like, I don't understand what you do, but I accept what you do. <laughs> 
(laughs) (laughs) And so I don't think like they don't really necessarily understand how I make money or anything like that, but they kind of just like have trusted my intuition from this point forward. Um, Obviously the awards and and accolades always help. And and, yeah, I think it's just a moment for everybody. Like I know my parents were super proud when I won that award and um, yeah, for me, it's great. Um, It's, a great achievement. And it's also great to be recognized by your community in that way. Well, so now I'm going to ask the uncouth question, which is how do you make money making photo art? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, well, I guess I should also preface that. So I just finished my master's, uh, in fine arts from Concordia university. So I guess I got it. Like I mentioned in my undergrad, I, um, was interning at the Ryerson Student Gallery, and I learned kind of more about exhibition making and putting on exhibition and grant writing and that kind of thing. Um, then I worked for a year um, in the fundraising department at Hot Docs Film Festival. Um, so I got experience in arts administration, and I started to understand how that world worked. And then I realized I was like, I could go down that path and make that kind of my day job but I miss making art too much and it's really hard to balance a full-time job sometimes and art making. So I decided to save up and then I applied to do my master's and I moved to Montreal. So I'm here in Montreal. (laughs) Um, And a couple of reasons for that. Um, But I will be honest, like a lot of them are financial. So like living in Toronto and trying to, you know, balance Toronto rent and a job and a practice was just very draining for a while. So I was like, let me go somewhere where I can um, have less sort of financial head costs and focus more on work and school. So I moved to Montreal. I was able to get funding to do my master's and I was able to get TA ships and jobs through the school um, and yeah, have a lot more time to focus on art making. So that really helped. And I just graduated uh, from my master's uh, this past May, actually. Pandemic graduation? <laughs> yeah. So it was a little unfortunate because I didn't get to have like a final exhibition, which you would normally have, but that's okay. Um, it'll come eventually. <laughs> but yeah. And then, so I also kind of through that process realized that I enjoy teaching. So now that's sort of a route I'm trying to get into otherwise, but I would say, I mean, right now it's, it's obviously a weird time because it's pandemic. So Currently, I don't have a day job. I'm 100% freelancing. I'm not teaching this term either. And I think it's really a combination of putting your name out there and also trying to figure out jobs for yourself. (laughs) So I don't, like, I'm not a, I've never worked commercially as a photographer. And that's a good route for people. Um, I think if, you know, I just, it's just so happens that I haven't done that, but that would be a good route otherwise. Um, but for me, I'm getting more into writing a little bit and doing a bit of freelance writing as well, in addition. And, you know, just talking to friends and being like, you know, I have this sort of, I want to interview this person, for example, in mind and where can I do that? And how can I get funding? Or, oh, I'm working on a book actually for a dear Nani. I'd like to make a book project and then being like, okay, what grants can I apply to, to try to get this funded? Um, and things like that. So it's, I'm just hobbling it all together. And I think every couple, every three months is really like a, a new time that I'm still figuring it out, but yeah, I don't know. It's exciting and it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you were saying you're doing some freelancing. Is that predominantly the writing then at this point, or are you freelancing as well in, in terms of uh, photography? Yeah. So I'm freelancing in terms of art making, I guess I would say. So sometimes people 
for example, I'm in a group show right now um, at Or Gallery in Vancouver, and I'm getting paid an artist fee for for being part of the exhibition and also uh, doing a talk. I did a, I led a workshop in relation to that. Um, I'm leading a few workshops actually, and and getting paid for those kinds of things and doing uh, public talks over Zoom, um, which have been paying recently and. Sometimes, so, um, yeah, art making, like, there, I think right now, especially people are looking for, like, online content in whatever form. So I made an audio piece in the winter. Um, I also made a sort of, like, short animation. So I'm kind of getting into different realms. Um, and I'm going to probably be returning back to photography, but I'm expanding my practice in different ways. So um, I think I'm at a point now, uh, luckily, where it's really important to be in touch with your community and kind of keep an ear to the ground and when things are popping up. And oftentimes if you're working with an institution like a gallery or something like that, there is funding available. So if they're able to hire you to make a short piece, even if it's just like a, I made a GIF recently that was like a piece for an online publication. So it can be as simple as that. Well, tell me about staying in touch with people. Because you said getting involved in the community, that's incredibly hard in in normal times. But Mm -hmm. during... COVID times, you can't just walk across the room and go, hey, I, you know, I really like your work. I'd, I'd like to ask you a couple of things. What, what's the version of that that's working for you right now? Um, Zoom, actually, I would say. There, there are quite a lot of Zoom sort of panels and workshops um, and, you know, to attend at your discretion and moderation. Um, I think podcasts like this and even, you know, online talks and stuff can just help for you to Sometimes I always like to listen to an artist talk or another artist talk about their work because it helps me sometimes process things that I'm thinking about my own work. But uh, in terms of, you know, if there is someone or another artist that you really like or want to get in touch with or someone that you've been meaning to, you know, I just had a coffee this morning with someone who I've, you know, the name has been floated around. We've never met directly. We've attended the same workshops and they emailed me to just be like, thanks for this thing you did. And I was like, let's have a virtual coffee. Um, because it can just seem like so much more, I really like it because it's more direct and you're actually having a real conversation, which I find even beyond COVID times, having an actual coffee with someone is so much more of a real sort of relationship builder than seeing someone as an opening. Like as I'm getting older, I think I'm going less to art openings and things like that because unless I like won't know the, the people involved and I want to support, um, because these kind of very quick transient interactions don't always amount to much and having like a, you know, really seeking someone out and being like, can I sit down with you can be really helpful. Also in terms of, so I just signed up to be a mentor. I don't know if you've heard of the BIPOC photo mentorship. No, I haven't. What's that? Yeah, so it's a BIPOC uh, photo mentorship, which is, I think it started at the beginning of the pandemic and it's in its second run now. Um, And Heather Morton, who I believe is a photo professor, started this kind of list of databases of professional photographers and photo-based artists. Um, And it's a list that emerging uh, BIPOC photo artists can access and then reach out to apply to be mentored by someone else. Um, And that can take place in any form uh, that you decide. So things like that can be really great for emerging photo people. I always laugh because artists, writers, painters, musicians, generally speaking, they usually go into these little cocoons all by themselves and, 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 and tinker away until something is ready to be revealed. 
It, that was the old way. The new way is a lot more giving, a lot more open, a lot more showing your work and, and, and sort of revealing the magic that is happening. You see that a lot on, on social media, obviously, of course, and YouTube and all the various platforms that are out there where people are showing their work and showing how it's done and sharing how it's done a lot more, even to the point of mentorship, like you're talking about, little literal direct one-to-one. Mm-hmm. What do you do online that, that helps get you out there and known and in front of people? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely a balance. I think everyone has to find their personal balance and style. And it's hard to sometimes you feel like, oh, like, um, am I like, oh, I should put something like this out, but I'm not ready for this to be out. Um, And that can feel (laughs) difficult at times. But I will say that I have gotten a lot of opportunities through Instagram and people. And it also kind of does probably keep people, keep me in people's minds. Um, I tend to use it more like a, a blog. So yeah, I might post snippets of work in progress, but mostly I post like if I have an exhibition coming up or if I have something uh, featured online, I'll just kind of put it up there so people can see what I'm up to. And yeah, it's it's funny. I know like a lot of people who um, they find it a huge chore and I definitely do think it is part of my job. But so far, I think I've found a way to keep it so that it's a useful tool for me, but I don't feel overly burdened by it at the same time. Well, it's one thing to use it as a as a broadcast medium, saying I'm doing this, I'm working on this, I'm I'm heading out to this. Do you ever use it to get feedback mm-hmm. and to talk to the people that are following along? I guess it's something I could do more. I've done it once or twice. Yeah, when you're in the process of making something, I think I posted once. It was like, do you plan the form of your work in the beginning? I kind of forget what I wrote now. It was something about like. Uh, I think I was trying to plan out how to go about making a certain work. And it's like, do you think about the form like in the beginning or do you think about it later? So little, little things like that can definitely keep people engaged and also just, or I think I was also one time I was doing a a studio visit and I was like, any tips for studio visits? Um, Because nobody really teaches you how to do that in art school either. Um, Now I think people are talking about it a little bit more, but yeah, stuff like that. It can be really great or just like access information or like whatever sort of tools that you might need and things like that. Do you ever work with other people? I mean, whether it's a collaboration or do you, do you work with like a manager? Do you, like, what's the nature of the, of the relationship between you and let's say the exhibitor? How does that all kind of work? So it kind of depends. I, uh, so I don't have representation. Like I don't have a gallerist or anything like that. I work independently. Um, usually if someone reaches out to me for an exhibition, there's a curator um, involved. Sometimes the curator works at that institution that they're showing the work, or they might be an external person um, for the show I'm in right now in Vancouver. My friend uh, Nora Bangu is uh, curating, and we got to know each other over the past few years and have worked together before. So it's great because that's somebody I already sort of know and trust, and we can work together in, in different spaces and different capacities. But otherwise, I'm usually, yeah, it kind of depends on the institution on how they approach artists. And what does it kind of normally look like? I mean, when a curator reaches out to you, are they putting on a show because they're trying to sell this work? Are they just trying to show this work? I mean, what, what's the end goal for them and ultimately for you to participate and, and lend a piece or put a piece in? Right. Yeah. So I mostly use in mostly work, sorry, show work in artist run spaces. So I don't usually make money off of actually selling my photos. Although I have in the past at certain uh, places, but I don't have commercial representation currently. So that's something I'm like talking about. Um, I think that's a whole other 
topic we could talk about. And it's something that could be really useful and really great, but it's a lot of artists uh, don't have. <laughs> I would say it's like a lot of people don't. Um, it takes a long time, I guess, too, because you have to be of a certain a certain, I don't want to say caliber, but a certain, yeah, I think you have to show certain merit as an artist and also make work that's sellable. And my work is not always sellable because sometimes I make video work or or vinyl pieces or things that you can't really, not even objects, things you can't really sell all the time. So mostly I work with artist-run spaces and they work on the mandate that they receive grants, um, usually from government to cover their operating expenses and they pay artist fees. So it's really more about sort of producing culture for the community. And often if I'm showing in a group show, it might be uh, tackling a certain subject matter, a certain theme that each of the artists are responding to. uh, Or if it's a solo show, it's a sort of larger project that I'm, uh, you know, presenting in the space. I see on your site that um, you've got a few pieces that are for sale, I'm assuming somewhat directly. You have made some pieces that, that, that are obviously meant for some sort of commercial distribution. What was the thinking behind making some pieces for commercial purposes? Well, honestly, there's been moments where people have asked me. So for example, a lot of, because I like to show in, you know, smaller galleries, like artist-run spaces, student spaces, university sort of student galleries, things like that. Um, oftentimes people will have fundraisers where they're like, could you donate a print or something small uh, so we can raise money that way? Or sometimes I even do it myself to try to fundraise for certain causes that I support. My photos, the thing about selling photos is that when you get into the sort of art, I honestly don't even really know how this works, but when you get into the art market, there's certain price points <laughs> that your photos should hit in order for them you know, to make additions. You're kind of, you're trying to make an uh, art object that is worth as much as a painting, say, with your photos. So usually what people do will do sort of a small addition of photos. And the reason I don't have my photos for sale on my website that way is because I, you know, want to reserve rights to them and I want to be able to retain the value that I think that they are worth in that way. But I've started making text work and things like that. And people have asked me, I had someone ask me when my, one of my most recent vinyl pieces, they were like, I would love to have this in my house. And I was like, well, it's a vinyl. So it's, you know, it's a one-time use. And they're like, yeah, I don't know if there's any way you can make it so that I could have a copy. And I was kind of like, all right, well, let me think about this. And in the past, I had done small sort of prints on just on my eight and a half by 11 paper of my designs that people, yeah, could take home and sell for not very expensive. And then it can be kind of, it's nice to, yeah, have this item that can be disseminated um, in the community and, and less expensive. So yeah, I decided to make a few editions of that. And yeah, I also put out a recent collection of writing, which I was able to self-publish and I was able to produce them fairly inexpensively as well. So that's been nice. I've been able to get things out that way. Are you trying to achieve something specific or convey something with your work? I don't think I have one, you know, the interests of my practice are constantly shifting um, as I'm sure they will continue to shift as I get older um, and move through life and those kinds of things. There are certain topics in my mind that I have an inclination to want to express. And I think, yeah, those, those sort of interests that keep changing as I, as I move through my practice and, you know, you address one thing in one project and then it kind of leads you to another. Uh, so it's sort of this trajectory. I will just say there's no end goal in my practice. I think I'm an artist because 
I have a compulsion to make and to say (laughs) things, mostly say, I think I, from a very early age, realized that I have things I want to say. And I was a little bit more quiet when I was younger. um, And I didn't always feel like I could articulate myself with words. So art was just a way for me to do that. And firstly, photography, I felt like I could express myself through images and that's evolving into different things. So I think I was, yeah, I was just talking just to a friend of mine earlier and it's like, we just have this compulsion to make and it's a gift. And I think that's one thing that you do learn from arts education. One of my professors, you know, towards the end of my degree said, you know, what you learn in the school is really how to have an original idea and execute it. And, you know, you might go on and not be an artist or not be a photographer. It doesn't really matter, but you have now learned the confidence to start with an idea execute it, stand up in front of people, present your idea, back it up. And that's a really valuable skill. And and even if you go on and do like engineering or something like that, just (laughs) it doesn't really matter. But just learning how to believe in yourself and your idea, I think that's something that you can't learn in a lot of other capacities. Well, what sort of advice would you give to somebody who wants to get into photography in an art type of practice? I would say just don't be afraid to do what yeah, the impulse like that you're feeling, um, even if it doesn't feel like it can go anywhere, or if it doesn't feel prof- profitable, or if you haven't been able to discover people who are making work like you, that's usually a good thing. Um, and eventually you will find uh, a certain, I think you will find a certain community or pocket of people that you're able to respond to. And also make sure, I guess, maybe I've talked about the community a, a little bit um, in this conversation. And I think it is important to respond to a community as well. Like I consider myself, like I have an art community in Toronto and in Montreal and there's, you know, certain friends and colleagues and people that I will turn to because I'm not in school anymore. So when you're in school, you make a project and you can show your professors or you should show your classmates and get feedback that way. But when you're not anymore, um, you have those friends and people whose just opinions you respect and, you know, you're still going to reach out to them for coffee and try to get feedback that way. And just, you know, as you move forward, it's important to keep those relationships. So where can people find out more about you? Um, so you could follow me on Instagram. Uh, my uh, handle is at ZSnacks, Z-S-N-A-X underscore underscore. Um, and my portfolio is on my website, ZinyaNakvi.com. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing with us how you make a living. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Obi, and it was great talking to you. Subscribe to Making a Living Show on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more on the show, visit makingalivingshow.com and follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Making a Living Show is produced by Next Exit Media and hosted by me, Roby Levy. Thanks for listening.